0: Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part, a Masonic Podcast. And we're your hosts. I'm Greg Knott.
1: I'm Darren Lieners.
2: And I'm Bill Hostler.
0: Tonight's guest is Robert Sullivan IV. Robert is a Freemason, a philosopher, a historian, an antiquarian, a jurist, a lay theologian, a writer, a mystic, a radio TV personality, a showman, a best-selling author, a CEO, and I won't hold this one against him. He's also a lawyer. So Robert is also the author of some outstanding books that we're going to talk about tonight. The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy and Symbolism, Cinema Symbolism, A Guide to Esoteric Imagery in Popular Movies, Cinema Symbolism 2, More Esoteric Imagery in Popular Movies, and his upcoming book, Cinema Symbolism 3, and as well as a work of fiction, A Pact with the Devil, The Witches of Highgate, Book One. And all of these books, you can purchase on Rob's website, and we'll put a link to this out. But it's Robert W. Sullivan IV, and that's IV4, like the Roman numeral, dot com. Robert W. Sullivan IV, dot com. Brother Sullivan, welcome, and uh, we're glad to have you here on the podcast tonight. You could just give us a little bit of your Masonic background. Well, thank you, brothers,
3: for having me on your show tonight. It's my pleasure to be here. It's wonderful. Again, you know, it's awesome to be on a show hosted by three masons. I think this is a first for me. Yeah, I've been a uh, mason now for over 25 years. Excuse me, over 20 years. Coming up on 25 years, I uh, was initiated uh, at the Blue Lodge in the Blue Lodge in 1997 here in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, The lodge that I'm in is Amicable St. John's uh, Number 25, which I believe is the third oldest lodge in the state of Maryland. Maybe the second. I'd, I'd have to go look that. Up. But I, I joined the Lodge in 1997, and then in 1999, I joined the Scottish Rite. And uh, becoming a Mason was something that I was always interested in as a little boy, even. Uh, I come from a long line of Maryland Freemasons, great-grandfathers, grandfathers were Masons. Um, some of them, uh, you know, were past masters, uh, ruling the Lodge for a year. So, I mean, I was, you know, oh, I was always as a child interested in mystical doctrines and, you know, UFOs and cryptozoology, things like that, and certainly Freemasonry. I think my family aside, one of the earliest impacts on me was this old uh, In Search Of episode about Jack the Ripper possibly being a Freemason, uh, you know, with Leonard Nimoy and uh, with All of them In Search Of, and a nonsensical story. I mean, it's a bedtime fairy tale, but it still was interesting. And uh, at any rate, I've, I was always drawn to it, and I always wanted to uh, continue the family tradition. Like I said, my grandfather was one, my great-grandfather was one, It skipped over my father. But uh in, in 1996, uh, this was a time in between uh, when I got out of college after I graduated college and before I went to law school, the opportunity presented itself. So I took it and I went through the three degrees uh, here in Baltimore at Amicable Lodge. And like I said, two years later, I was uh, joined the Scottish Rite. And I can I, I can definitely say without question that my membership in the Masonic Lodge, without, without it, those books would not have been possible. So it's something that I consider very beneficial and I'm a proud member. And, you know, I, I love being in the fraternity.
1: Robert, uh, your first book is quite a piece of literature, The Royal Arch of Enoch. You cover a lot of material in it. Let's just try to kind of highlight what you cover. The main thesis, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is basically that the Book of Enoch was basically discovered in Ethiopia. However, it's your premise that there had to have been copies of it or knowledge of it by some of the folks that wrote some of the higher degrees of Freemasonry because those degrees came out prior to the discovery of the, the rediscovery, I guess, of the book, correct?
3: Yeah, that that sounds about right. the 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 book, the, the the book of Enoch, is lost to history until 1773. The high degree rituals are being developed in France in 1740, 1750. Uh, so you, you're looking at like a 23 year time frame before the you know, book's official return to the history pages. The thesis of the book is that the Enoch, the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial, is incorporating components from one Enoch, which shouldn't be happening. And that's the thesis of the book. I also delve into, you know, how this could have happened. You know, could there have been a book out there? Where could it have come from? Things like that. But that's, you're you're correct. That's the main thesis of the book. And, And then I carry that forward, moving history forward. The reason why, I mean, if that's all it was, you know, you could just, you know, you cut the book in half. But then what I get into is, that the ritual is so critical to the founding of the United States, and it's it, it carries forward a lot of these Enochic symbolism, you know, that you find in the Book of Enoch, such as like you know apotheosis, uh, things like that. And it's really, it really when you come to understand it, it really is the degree out of all Freemasonry, that the founders, especially guys like the White Clinton, especially the, the 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 Freemasons who kind of follow in the founders' footsteps, who are really crafting the country after uh, Washington dies in 1799, they are really relying on this high-degree ceremonial to model the nation around. So that's why it's really, in, in my estimation at any rate, so, so very important. It's kind of like a piece of lost history, as it were. So, yeah, you're correct. That is pretty much the thrust of the uh, Royal Archivion book, and— that's, you know, like you said, that's pretty much the thesis of it.
1: And, uh, one of the things I think that, uh, you, you see in, in the book is your grasp of, uh, of the symbolism, not only of the degree, but also, uh, as you said, how that degree uh, influences not only the formation of the government, the formation of some of the uh, other uh, Freemasonic bodies, you know, that Clinton, uh, put forward. Sure. But but also uh it's almost kind of a preview to the Cinema Symbolism books. There's a chapter at the very end if I recall correctly where you delve into talking about national treasure and how that is basically a retelling of uh the uh 13th degree in the uh, Scottish Rite and then also uh the Royal Arch degree.
3: Right. The, the Royal Arch as it, as it is posited now is the seventh of the York Rite and the thirteenth in the Scottish. And when I was writing the Royal Arch of Enoch, when I was reaching the conclusion of it, you're dealing with a lot of very arcane Masonic philosophy and history. And I sort of wanted to bring the, I didn't want the book to end on history. I wanted to bring it up to speed. I wanted to bring the book up to the modern era. And I thought, well, what better way to do this than to talk about some movies that incorporate Masonic symbolism. Some are more overt than others. Some are more covert. And of course, the one that you just mentioned, National Treasure. I guess you could describe it as sort of the uh, godfather, I suppose, of the Masonic movies. Uh, Especially when you're dealing with it in the, especially when you're dealing with in the context of the Royal Arch ritual, because. Uh, the movie, the, the 2000, I believe it was four movie. Can't believe it's been, what, 16 years since that movie came out. The, the movie is essentially a retelling of the Masonic ritual where you have in the ceremony the discovery of the Masonic treasure in the subterranean treasure vault beneath the holy ground. And of course, what do you have in the movie? Well, I mean, it's the same thing. It's the discovery of the Masonic slash Knights Templar treasure in a subterranean vault beneath the Holy Ground they set it in New York City in the movie which is a complete is which is a allusion to DeWitt Clinton and the Royal Arch Masons so the the Royal Arch uh cinematically is really brought to life in the Royal excuse me in the National Treasure movie and that fascinated me I thought that was really uh just a fantastic talking point and a fantastic way to wrap up the book as it were and I delve into some of the other Imagery in movies regarding uh, masonry and solar symbolism, such as being there, where you have the you know the pyramidal uh, tomb at the end, and then I got into National Treasure 2, which also has uh, some Masonic imagery as well, some more hidden than others, and Excalibur, which is the solar allegory of King Arthur, and then when I got done Royal Arch, I I really liked that last chapter. I thought, wow, this is just you know just such a fascinating subject matter, and. and bear in mind that when the Royal Ar- Royal Arch came out, there was really no book or anything that really delved into occult and Maso- or, and or Masonic or esoteric symbolism and themes in movies and um, the Cinema Symbolism book was really one of the first of its kind where I kind of continued on that theme from the final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch, presenting like the Gnostic themes in the Matrix movies and uh, delving into some of the comparative religion themes in uh, the Back to the Future tr- Trilogies and th- the or trilogy, and the um, symbolism of the Wizard of Oz movie. Nowadays, in 2020, this is really a cottage industry almost. There are countless... YouTube channels now dissecting movie symbolism and trying to present Easter eggs. Some of them do a uh, pretty decent jobs, but a lot of them don't go, at least I don't think go into the depth that I go into, but that's of course me saying that. But, uh, like I said, in 2012, 2014, uh, when the first movie book was released, it w- there was really no other, no other books that really fleshed out a lot of the arcane, uh, deeper meanings in movies. There were maybe one or two that talked about it being like, you know, the products of the Illuminati or something like that, but the end chapter of the Royal Arch and the first movie book producers, really, I believe, the first of their kind. Like I said, nowadays in 2020, this has become a complete cottage industry. I mean, I could show you literally countless YouTube channels talking about this. I mean, some of them are really nonsensical. I mean, some of them are just flat out stupid. But some of them, you know, do have a better understanding of, of the material. But at any rate, the end chapter of the Royal Arch definitely led to the cinema book. And then just to wrap up, of course, you can't talk about every movie, so then I released Cinema Symbolism 2, and I'm getting ready, and then I released Pact with the Devil, which you mentioned, which was my first work of fiction. Right now, sitting here in July of 2020, I'm getting ready to release my third movie book, which is called, appropriately, Cinema Symbolism 3. That book will be released in October of 2020. Then again, we're dealing with a whole new slate of movies, and I'm really looking forward to releasing it and returning to the uh, radio podcast scene, as it were.
2: You know, like you said that National Treasure, basically it, it's a retelling of the Royal Arts degree in New York right, and the 13th degree in both jurisdictions of the Scottish Rite. But how does it relate to Oak Island? Right,
3: well, this is, this is now a new uh, subject that's being talked about and it's, that's surfacing now is that. And as we were talking about before the show began, I was just on a show that aired on the History Channel called Digging Down talking about this. Well, now, now the theory is that the treasure buried at Oak Island is not necessarily pirate treasure, which was pretty much the general thought all along. Now they're thinking that this is somehow related to the Knights Templar. And this could be buried there, the treasure related to the Knights Templar. This is, of course, you know, what they would have found or discovered in the Holy Land, brought back to Europe with them. Uh, Whatever this information or or treasure was, we don't know for certain. All we know is they come back to Europe, all these Gothic Cathedrals pop up all over the place. Of course, they're suppressed in 1307. They go underground. They apparently take refuge in Scotland. And at some point in time, the theory is that they visited the New World pre-Columbus. And uh, on Oak Island, they hid uh, this treasure there. Um, whatever it may be, we just don't know. I mean, you, we could speculate on that all night. It could be monetary treasure, gold. It could be wisdom, capitalistic information. We just don't know. And there is – when you start breaking this down, the, the reason people are thinking this is – and this is what I was on the show talking about – is there are some very startling – to the treasure vault on Oak Island and this Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial. I can't sit here and tell you for certain that this is the case. No one can say that because this is still in its early stages, but there are without question some uncanny parallels between the Royal Arch degree and the uh, treasure at Oak Island. So for example, you know, the surface treasure or the surface uh, covering uh, runs parallel. It's like a slab, which which runs parallel within the uh, ritual of course, the granddaddy of them all is that the treasure vault on oak island is apparently concealed under nine vaults and uh this is the way it is in the ritual there are seven arches or vaults uh that the treasure vault uh, that the ultimate treasure vault is concealed within in the royal arch ceremonial of course in the ritual there is the discovery of herema keystone which has uh strange hieroglyphs on it and then we have a slab being found in the treasure vault in the money pit which also has strange hieroglyphs on it so there is this uh parallel uh, between these two treasures, uh, between the ritual and the Oak Island treasure. And like I said, it's still in its early stages. I mean, we can't, I can't come on here and say for sure, no, that is definitely the case. But I can say that there are, without question, parallels between the ritual and this Oak Island treasure vault. And I think that the parallels are worth investigating. I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, like I said, I was just on the History Channel talking about this. So it is interesting and, I, you know, it just remains to be seen what, what if anything, they continue to discover up there. I mean, they're documenting this now on the History Channel, so uh, we'll just see what happens.
1: Rob, let's talk about Cinema Symbolism 3. Uh What movies uh or what films do you discuss sure. in the book?
3: Right. Well, this is uh like I said, this is the third book that I've put out and we're gonna deal with a whole new slate of movies in Cinema Symbolism Three. One of my favorite subjects when I talk about these movies is is Gnosticism at all. This is a very popular uh subject in Hollywood. And I guess if you want to see the three, I suppose granddaddy of Gnostic movies are probably the Matrix, Fight Club, and the Truman Show. These are movies that I've dissected before. And then in Cinema Symbolism Three, I thought, well let's let's take aim at some other Gnostic movies that are probably right there with those three that maybe get swept under the rug a little bit. So I'm going to be, we're going to get into movies like uh, uh, Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise. That's a very Gnostic movie. Donnie Darko, uh very Gnostic film. Uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, you know, one of the first movies ever made. Arguably, obviously, the first Gnostic movie ever made. Dark City, of course. That's again, another, you know, val- Valentinian fa- fairy tale, as it were. So we're going to, we're going to do a whole chapter on that. And then in Cinema Symbolism 2, I got into some of the works of David Lynch, that's very popular, so I'm going to continue that, uh, in the, in the third book. Uh, we're going to be dealing with movies such as Eraserhead, uh, the, uh, Wild at Heart movie with Nicolas Cage, Twin Peaks. Uh, that's a very intense study. There is so much going on in that. I mean, you could write a book, I mean, people have, you could write a book on that stuff alone. Uh, then we're going to be getting into some more of the Star Wars material. When the, when the last book was written, they just started releasing the, uh, the, the, the latest episodes. So I'm going to get into episode seven, The Force Awakens, uh, the last Jedi movie, Rogue One. Uh, I'll be dealing with some of those. Then of course the monomyth. Uh, that's always a very popular, uh, subject matter. I've broken it down with regard to the Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. So I'm continuing that theme with the, uh, the Hobbit movies that were released in the 2010s. I break all three of those down. And then we're going to get into some, uh, um, movies that have been released more more recently. And this is probably what slowed the publishing of the book down. I recently, at the end of the year last year, and in- into early 2020, in January of 20, I was, I finally got to watch, uh, Midsommar and Hereditary, which are the two Ari Aster movies, and then Joker, of course, with Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, and all three of those are just overloaded with esoteric themes and symbolism and all kind of stuff. And, at that point in time, in January of 2020, the book was pretty much done. And I sat back and I wrestled with this for about two or three weeks. I, I just kind of made a decision finally. I thought, no, Joker and Midsommar are just too overloaded with stuff. So I decided to incorporate those into the into the book. And that, that took about two months to do. So that slowed everything up. If I hadn't done that, the book would have probably been out by now. But I, I decided I wanted to include Hereditary, but I thought, no, that'll just it up too much. So I decided to include Midsommar and and Joker movie uh, with Phoenix, two two movies, again, that are just overloaded with all all sorts of Occult imagery and themes and references to other movies and drawing upon archetypes, all kinds of stuff. That's kind of what delayed the book a little bit. Those are some of the movies. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that we're going to get into. Uh, my goodness, it's, it's just so many of them. This always happens. I always get asked this question. Give me a preview of the books and uh, I always seem to draw a blank on them. Oh, we're going to get into some of the horror movies, of course. We're going to get uh, into the new Suspiria movie that was released in 2018. Uh, the latest Halloween movie, which was also released in 2018. So yeah, that's a pretty good preview. Like I said, the book, it's, it's wrapping up now. I'm just going through it and making some final adjustments to it, some final, you know, rearrangements, making sure everything looks okay. I got to, you know, double check the footnotes, make sure that's proper, the bibliography and all that. And uh, as I sit here today with you, the book should be released. I don't see it coming out any later than October of 2020. I, I think it'll be out by then.
1: I personally look forward to it. Uh, Your books are some of my favorite books to read. I know you deal quite a bit with Kubrick, and here's a little trivia for you. Greg and myself work at the University of Illinois in Urbana, uh, Illinois, uh, also Champaign, Illinois, and there's a character in a Kubrick movie that was born in Urbana. Uh, Can you tell me what character that is?
3: It's in one of Kubrick's movies, so it has to be, it has to be one of his uh, more recent ones, I suppose. He's got so many though, I mean, it could be something from The Killing, I don't know. I mean, I'll just take a wild guess and just say Jack Torrance, but I have no idea.
1: No, so it's actually Hal, the Hal 9000 was made at the Hal plant in Urbana, Illinois, which is now, I think, actually the accelerated computer laboratory, if I remember correctly, but it's still that, that laboratory still exists on campus. Oh, excellent. Kubrick's
3: always a uh, interesting one. I really like analyzing his films. He's really an expert with it. What I like about Kubrick is, you know, he he picks and chooses. He doesn't use the same theme over and over again. He knows when to use this and when to use that. The one, the one movie that um, I've analyzed The Shining before, and I did Eyes Wide Shut, the one movie that I watched of his that I was kind of very blown away by, and I talk about it in the new book, was Lolita, which came out in 1963. And what's so unusual about that movie. It's not one of the ones you think of when you think of a Kubrick film. I mean, it's one of his movies, but so it's not one of the ones you think of when you think of, you know, you think of, uh, you know, 2001, The Shining Eyes Wide Shut, that, 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 that grouping. But Lolita is really exceptional because if you sit there and watch that movie, that movie is almost a, a roadmap for the rest of his career. You will see in that movie, all sorts of things that pop up in his later works. Uh, it's really uncanny. I, I don't know if it's just synchronicity, if it's a coincidence. I mean, I don't think Kubrick could see the future, but uh, it's really amazing when you sit down and watch Lolita uh, how many references you will see. It's like, oh, I remember that from... Uh, Full Metal Jacket, or there's something that relates to The Shining, or oh look, that's something that ties into Clockwork Orange. Years later, very strange. Uh, not sure how I can, not sure how it can be accounted for, but it's in there nevertheless.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I've been a while since I've watched Lolita, so I'll have to queue it up and, and take a look, see at it.
0: So when you're watching a movie, is there a do you have a method for how you're breaking it down? I know each movie's different, probably after a while you've done such a great job of in depth research. you probably kind of mind how you watch a movie, and what you're looking for, and how you break it how do you where do you start I guess you know you know what i'm gonna
3: yeah I, I understand the question uh I do have a methodology to this i guess I guess to I don't mind answering your question as best I can some of this as they would say is trade secrets. I don't want to give away my full methodology, but when I watch a movie it's it's one of those things for me. For for starters, I'll say this. I'll say this. I usually have to see it more than once to really get a good handle on it. The more I watch it, the more I will start. The more I will start to pick up on things, and it usually starts greater and then goes smaller. If I can get a general overview of what this picture is going for, if anything, not every movie has this. Then I can start keying in on the specifics, and that you know when I get the general crux of what they're going for. And sometimes it's multifaceted. Sometimes it's more than one thing. Then I can kind of start it's like a, it's like a keying off. Once I see what they're going for, then I get, okay, now I know what to look for. Now I'm, you know, keeping an eye out for this. It's like, it's like Kubrick. I'll give you a perfect example with this. It's like Kubrick with The Shining. That whole movie is nothing but repetition. That's all it is. It's just him repeating, uh, these tropes, double tropes, uh, uh, things relating to the doubles over and over and over again. That's all he does in that movie. It's just constantly it's repeating tropes related to the number two. Uh, or doubles that's all he does over and over and over again. Once I realize that, then I start looking for it. then i can then I can really zone in and start keying on this stuff. So for me, it's once I see kind of what the guy's going for, then I can start zoning in on it. Uh, like like for example, I'll give you a couple examples on this. One of the, the two, two of the movies that doing in the new book. Uh, one of them is Pan's Labyrinth by Tor Del Toro, and uh, he he does a lot in his movies. And in Pan's Labyrinth, there's a very subtle underlying theme of disobedience, almost of disobedience as sort of revelation. And you'll see it in there. And I I picked up on it, but then when I was watching, I watched it again recently the other day. I actually watched it, I think, about three days ago, and I picked up on something again with it because I knew what to look for. And, uh, another one that another movie that I, t- I take on in the new book is the house with the clock in its walls. That's a very interesting movie because there is astrological motifs all over this thing from start to finish. And you can pick up on it a little bit, but it, it's in the movie, but I get the impression when I watch it that I don't know if it's in there intentionally or if they were lifting it from the book and didn't know what they were really doing. It looks to me like when I watch the movie, it's there, but I can't quite Piece it together. How intentional it is. If if it's in the book, I've never read the book. If it's in the book and it really didn't translate as well, or if this is if it if it's intentional, maybe this is all they wanted to put put in it because it, the astrological motifs relate to the story about the end of the world, specifically the four fixed signs of the zodiac. So my methodology is part of it is I'm not going to give away everything, but part of it is what I'm observing a movie is to kind of go bigger and then is start big and then go small to see what the general context of it is and that's something else that's critical to to when I do this and I'm actually getting into this in, in, in the new book is It's this whole idea of context, and this comes from me being a lawyer. And I I can't stress this enough because this is the one thing that kind of – it doesn't stick in my craw, but when I hear other people doing this and and talking about movies and trying to analyze it, they they can't wrap their heads around this. And that is the idea of the context in which a symbol or a theme is presented. I cannot stress how important this is, and the reason I say it's important is because one symbol or one number or one motif in one movie, if it turns up in another movie, could have – An equally important meeting, but a different meeting. And I get asked this all the time. Well, how do you tell? How do you tell? Well, you have to look at the surrounding circumstances. Uh, and this comes from me being a lawyer. When you're presented with a fact pattern, you have to look at the uh, surrounding uh, circumstances to determine what's going on. There are so many researchers on this who just see something and say, oh, well, this is it across the board. You know, if you see it here, it's this. No, no, no. You have to look at the context in which it's presented because something in one context could be this and in another context, it could be that. So I'm constantly, I'm constantly uh, in the new book, I'm really stressing this uh, when, when I get into my analysis. So that's part of my methodology at any rate.
0: I'd have to agree. Your legal training probably it takes you to such a depth of research. You train your mind to look at things like that. And, you know, I think your point's spot on about, you know, somebody sees a symbol and, oh, that's always what it means. Well, no. No, and, right. And, and so many ways, the the social media and the Internet Make people lazy and don't go out and do the in-depth research that you do. I see it all the time in things. People, you know, they just well. It, of course, social media just amplifies this. Yeah, you, know, you see something and just makes people just be ridiculous and don't do their homework. And, oh, I agree uh, with you. And so that's. I think you know. I was looking at. I got your book here in Kindle, the the Royal Archivino, and or Royal Archivino, and just I can tell you have done your homework. And you've done it. And that's why I asked you about, you know, a methodology, not the, just the fact that you have one. I think that's what's important. And that's what to me adds the credibility of the research you're doing. It's not just some, Hey, I spent a weekend looking on Google and finding these things. You have done, you have put in the time to bring out not only the meaning, but the other, I would call them add-ons, you know, in history. And, uh, that's, that's what, a uh, just, just glancing through your, you know, but you can just see it. It's so obvious that you've used, used your legal training and other things, uh, to do that work. And, uh, it's just very impressive. Well, thank you for that.
3: And like, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, if you read the Masonic authors who talk about this, like Mackey and, you know, Albert Pike and, uh, Manly P. Hall, they say the same thing over and over again, that when it comes to symbolism, it has multiple meanings. It has, it's multi-layered. It is not a flat answer. You know, if, if you see something in a movie, that has an esoteric meaning. Don't just assume that if you see it in another movie, that it has it's conveying that same meaning. You have to look at the circumstances. It could be, but it could also be trying to convey something else. Um, and that's um, that's something that's very critical to my research is is pointing out those little attentions to detail, as it were. That that's very that's very critical to me. So you know, I appreciate your words. That means a lot to me because when I hear that, that means at least I know I I'm on the right path and I'm I I feel like I'm doing a good job with. It. Let me, let me throw
0: you one more out there just that kind of tags onto that. And it's, it's more higher level, but why do you think people are so fascinated by symbolism?
3: I think one of the reasons that it is for me at any rate is that it's concrete. You can get an answer from it. And I, I've been asked that question before and it's a very good question you ask. And I'll put it to you like this. You know, when you're dealing with the supernatural or the occult or UFOs or cryptozoology, you're always left with Something to the effect of this, you know, is it a UFO or is it a hoax? Is it, you know, a UFO or is it the planet Venus? You know, is the guy a hoaxer or is he telling the truth? Did the person really see a ghost or was he, you know, uh, having a panic attack? Is it really the Loch Ness monster or is it a boat with a dummy on the end of it? You know, is it Bigfoot or is it a guy running around in a gorilla suit? You know, there's always that. Question of, you know, is it a hoax? Is it real? Is it not real? How's the credibility of the guy, you know, making the the accusation or the assertion of it? You always are left with a question of doubt, as it were. If you queue up The Shining right now, I can show you all this. I mean, there it is. There's no if-ands or buts about it. I mean, I can show you why in Black Swan the number, the date February 12th appears on the poster. If you watch The Shining, I can show you where the number 42 repeats. I can show you the astrological symbolism in a house with a clock in its wall. I mean, I can show it to you. There is no if-ands or buts that the date of February 12th doesn't appear on a poster in Black Swan that is designed to conjure the birthday of Anna Pavlova. I could show you you repetition in The Shining that is without question there. You know, I can show you, uh the, I can point out to you the Gnostic uh, themes in the Matrix movies. You know, I can show you uh, you know, this, that, and the other. And these, it's concrete. I can show it to you. I mean, it's there. You know, I can explain, you know, if you want to get into, you know, more of it in a practical, you know, you know, in the Royal Arch standpoint, you know, I can show you, I offer you explanation as to why the United States Capitol building has a dome on it, you know, or why Minerva is on the seal of Union College's Connected in New York. I can explain it to you and say, you know, this is why it's there. There's less ambiguity with it. I think that's, in my opinion, why it makes it such a fascinating study is you can show it to somebody and say, you know, there it is. You know, it's not like, showing somebody a, a picture or a YouTube video of what purports to be a ghost. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, did someone is there someone standing behind the scenes doing something that I can't see? You know, if I cue you up, Kubrick's The Shining, I mean, I can sit here and pause it and go back and forth with you for three hours showing you every little piece of repetition in it that is irrefutable. So that's why it, it's so fascinating to me, and I think that's why it holds such a fascination. There's less ambiguity with it. Do you
0: think symbolism happens on purpose? Is it to the subconscious? Is it just by chance? And I mean, you've kind of given examples of the movies, which are obviously developed by authors, either from a book or from a movie script or both, or physical structures in architecture. I mean, I assume some's on purpose, but do you think in general, as, as humans, we plan these things or are we somehow wired and, and yeah. they come out in our thought processes?
3: Well, this is, this is a question that I, I, I really wrestle with in, in, in the books. I believe, I mean, again, it it has, you have to look at the, you have to, you have to look at it in a um, individual context. I think many, many movies are, it's intentional, you know, like The Shining. I mean, I believe that's clearly intentional. Movies like Black Swan, intentional. I mean, if you get familiar with a director and you see that this guy's an expert and is very sophisticated with it, you are more inclined to believe that it's intentionally done than by accident. I am a subscriber to Carl Jung and the archetypes and the collective unconscious that this sometimes may be guiding us. And maybe maybe because movies are ultimately an artistic expression, could this artistic endeavor somehow be drawing forth things from the collective unconscious and being implanted in films? This is very possible. Some of the things I talk about, and I've talked about this on other shows, is if you look at media, television shows, movies, in the lead up to 9-11, they are populated with 9-11 imagery all over the place. I can't believe in my heart that filmmakers knew this. So, I mean, then you have to ask yourself, if they didn't know it is not intentional, then how is it getting there? And again, then we're dealing with the world of the supernatural, which is what Carl Jung talked about with the collective unconscious archetypal imagery. Perhaps the collective unconscious is some sort of, has some sort of predictive mechanism in it. That's certainly possible. I mean, a a great example of this, I mean, I'll just give you a textbook example of this this, is something I was talking about earlier with Gnostic cinema, with Gnostic films. One of the I guess prime doctrines of Gnosticism is well awakening, is self consciousness, is 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 this idea of having an epiphany, of revelation. All of these Gnostic films, for what they are worth, The Matrix, Vanilla Sky, Donnie Darko, The Thirteenth Floor, The Dark City, Fight Club, most of them, all were released. The Truman Show were all released in this five-year window between. 1997 and 2002, this five-year time frame that completely synchronized with the turn of the millennium. Why that is, I don't know. But I mean, that just seems to me that it's psychological, and I don't think it was planned, but it seems intentional. But it seems more psychological than intentional, if that makes sense. And I can't believe that that's just happenstance. So in doing this for 20 years and researching this stuff for 20 years, my take is that a lot of it is intentional, but you always have to allow for the collective unconscious, for psychology, um, for archetypal imagery to be filtering into this. But like when I watch Kubrick's The Shining or Black Swan, I mean, I know these guys know what they're doing and I know they're putting it in there. I mean, same with National Treasure. I mean, I know that's intentional. But then you watch a movie like you know, like, for example, and this is something I've talked about on other shows, you watch this cheesy B-movie made by Ed Wood called Glenn or Glenda, which has in it, arguably, one of the greatest instances of a Gnostic Demiurge, uh, the creator of a false reality. I mean, I know that's unintentional. I mean, I know Ed Wood, because I know this because I've researched him enough, knew, knew nothing about Gnosticism, yet there his movie contains this great example of a Gnostic Demiurge, this lesser god, the god of the material world. So in that instance, that seems to me to be more of a subconscious influence than something intentional. So again, uh, I don't want to sound too ambiguous. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm not giving a definitive answer. But again, it really does come down to boils down to the context, the sophistication of the filmmakers, of the source material. Are they incorporating stuff? Let's look at the movie. Is it happenstance? You know, is it you're doing with a filmmaker that's maybe less sophisticated? That's what has to all be considered when, when analyzing this. All this stuff has to be taken into consideration. When you do that, then you can start making sense of this stuff.
2: First of all, I want to say I'm not a movie person, so a lot of these movies I haven't seen, but I have heard of them. And This is just off the top of my head, and I'm talking out of my hat, but I've noticed that some of them you mentioned, like Vanilla Sky, Eyes Wide Shut. Some of those, they they seem to have the same stars in them, like Tom Cruise, who's a Scientologist. Do you think that he might have something to do with some of this symbology, and could this have something to do with, like, say, like their particular beliefs and religion, like, say, Scientology? Or is that just something way out there?
3: Well, no, the the way I can answer that is, I mean, well, Scientology is a whole nother nutshell. I mean, that's a whole nother bailiwick. You know, Scientology will tell you Tom Cruise. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of members, superstars. I mean, two main famous ones are Tom Cruise and John Travolta. Scientology will credit themselves for their success. um, But if they release a movie that doesn't do well or they fade, then it's not their fault. So Scientology is sort of this red herring. In all this, in my eyes, but where, what is unique in this is, and this is something that is definitely happening, um, and I should point this out, when you're dealing with symbolism in film, you are, you are dealing with a vast palette of techniques these filmmakers use. This is not limited to a symbol in the background. I mean, you could deal, you're dealing with wardrobes, with, uh, music, uh, with thematics, you know, and one of the things that they use is actors. As crazy as this is going to sound, the placement of a certain actor in a film could actually be designed to resurrect in your subconscious mind an actor's earlier performance and a movie that this actor was in years ago that is somehow, by placing him in this movie, is somehow designed to conjure an earlier performance. That is done. And that's a real fascinating study. And I talk about this all the time. I mean, you know, without getting into the thing, I mean, we could talk about this all night, but like Anthony Zerbe in the sequel to The Matrix, The Matrix Reloaded, Anthony Zerbe's role were, uh, casting in that movie is completely designed to resurrect his performance as uh, Matthias in the Omega Man. Catherine Ross in Donnie Darko is intended to resurrect her earlier performance in The Graduate. Patrick Swayze, Donnie Darko, is designed to resurrect Dirty Dancing. Max von Cito in Star Wars The Force Awakens is designed to resurrect Dune and The Exorcist. You will find that the actual placement of a actor or actress in a movie, not all instances, but in some instances are designed to somehow conjure a earlier performance and thereby investing this latest iteration with the themes of an earlier movie. This is really a fascinating study. It's more than typecasting. It's more than just casting Bella Lugosi as the boogeyman over and over and over again. It's, it's really subtle and it's really expert. And it's one of the things I love pointing out is, is the placement of actors in movies where their performance in this new movie is designed to draw forth an earlier performance in another movie. That's a fascinating
2: subject. Do you think that placing this actor for this reason, do you think that's possibly for box office? Do you think that's for a whole different reason altogether?
3: No, I think it's to screw with your subconscious. It's to resurrect, it's, re- it's to resurrect imagery in your subconscious mind and then to transfer it to this new movie, but it's done on a subconscious level, you will not
2: notice it. Other than the obvious films like National Treasure, The Man Who Could Be King, or, you know, Murdered by the Cree from Hell and, and what movies about Freemasonry do you really like?
3: Well, I, li- I like those. I like National Treasure. I mean, it's it's purely fiction, but I always thought the Murder by Decree movie was good. I like the From Hell, which is based same. It's the same movie essentially, only without Sherlock Holmes. I like those three. I always like. I wouldn't necessarily designate it as a Masonic movie per se, but it definitely has Masonic undercurrents. It's Fight Club with uh, Brad Pitt there and Ed Norton. That's a great movie. Uh, that that has some decidedly Gnostic undercurrents or Gnostic and Masonic undercurrents. Those two walk off and walk hand in hand. You know, I always like I like both National Treasure movies, uh, very very Masonic movies. So yeah, those th- those were the ones I'd go with from a Masonic standpoint. Those are all all pretty good.
1: I know you're a giant horror fan, Robert, but uh, here's uh, probably a difficult question for you to answer. Do you have a favorite movie, and and why would it be your favorite
3: of all time?
1: Yeah, of all time, like if yeah, I all time. had a if I had a gun to your head, what what would you, uh, what would your answer be?
3: Yeah, I, I, that's a tough one because there's so many that, I mean, I could give you like a top 10, uh, probably in no particular order. The one movie that I, I just really, I just really absolutely love and it's the one that I just mentioned is Fight Club. I, I just think that movie is fantastic. I, I, I think that movie is all but flawless in my opinion. I just, I just love the, the, the moral of the story. I just love its, uh, theme, its premise and I, that, that, like I said, a, that would be up there with one of my all-time favorites. There's so many. I mean, I could give you, like I said, a top 10 or top 20 of my all-time favorites that are not in any particular order, but I can tell you right now that Fight Club would probably be up there, I'm up there in the top three, probably.
1: Fight Club is an excellent movie, and uh, we have something in common. We were both featured in the Fraternal Review recently that the had the theme of Fight Club. And sure, right I right. so one of the things about Fight Club that I kind of find fascinating is that there's this theory that the narrator character and, and Marla die at the end that actually the film cuts out, but the building that they're standing in is also part of the demolition and ends up collapsing. What uh, I have seen on it, and I've not gone back and watched it myself since seeing this, is that after the narrator character disarms the bomb in the van that's in that building, they kind of do another close-up. They go through the bolt hole in the window and they show the clock, and the clock is actually ticked down from the time that it was at. I'll
3: have to watch uh, it. I'll have to go back and take a look at it. I,
1: I yeah, take that. take a take a look at that and see if you uh, see if you agree with that.
3: Sometimes these, these filmmakers do stuff like that to make it to make it confusing to to leave it open to interpretation. If you if you watch if you watch the movie Vanilla Sky, they do the same thing in that. If you've never seen it, I mean, I'll just I'll just leave it at this. If you've seen the movie, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. Where they tell you where the dream sequence starts, but there's evidence at the beginning of the movie that the whole thing is a dream. So. It's left, you know, confusing. And for a film, you know, if if it's like that in Fight Club, that wouldn't surprise
1: me either. I know we've talked a little bit about The Shining, and I know that you've talked about it's a movie of of duplicates. I've also seen a couple of other theories regarding it. I think one of the most outlandish ones is that it is basically Kubrick telling everyone that he directed the moon landings.
3: What's what's so strange about this is is is, is that true? Is I, I haven't made up my mind on that yet. The theory is this: this has to be separated because some people say it's evidence that men never went to the moon and that Kubrick filmed the footage of them, you know, parading around in a sound studio planting the flag in the ground. There's another theory on this that if if if, they, if you're going to subscribe to the conspiracy theory, this one makes more sense: is that they actually went to the moon, but they couldn't film there. So they used, they actually went, but the footage was Kubrick filming actors in a sound studio prancing around planting the flag down. But they actually went to the moon, but they couldn't film there. And the theory in this well, I'll put it to you like this: It's when you hear it for the first time, it might sound outlandish, but the idea is not that far fetched when you think about it. Because here's why: is the idea is that NASA, or the government, saw Kubrick's work with *Strangelove* and *2001* were impressed with it, and they hired him to film this. Well, if you look at the if you look at those two movies, you could see where they would think this because you'll see parallel, you know, especially with with *2001*, uh, where they would think this from. In The Shining, this is the whole scene where Danny is playing with the toys, and he stands up with the Apollo 11 sweater on, and then he goes to room 237, and it, the whole thing is supposed to, the, the, the conspiracy theory is that this is a rocket launch. The little boy standing up is Apollo 11 taking off. In the late 1970s, early 80s, the moon was two thousand three hundred seventy thousand miles from the Earth, so that's why the boy goes to 237. It's It's the rocket going to the moon, as it were. You could even argue that uh, the bathroom is, you know, it's the woman in the bathroom. The moon associates with the feminine, so it's the moon. And in the book, in King's book, it's a different room number. I think it's two seventeen. Kubrick changed it to two three seven, and that's always been a question mark. Well, why did he change it? And, Of course, this is the answer. That that's the theory. But what what make what what makes this even a little more stranger is in nineteen seventy five. This is lesser known. Kubrick made a full movie called Barry Lyndon, and and that movie is very authentic, and it's one of the First movies, I believe it is the first movie. Well, Kubrick wanted to film a lot of the scenes. It takes place during the Napoleonic era, the Napoleonic Wars. And a lot of people you got to know a little bit about movie making about this. Kubrick wanted to film a lot of the scenes by lit by candlelight, but you couldn't do it. Can't you you can't. It doesn't come out right. It's too dark. If, if you ever watch a movie. There's no movies that are lit by candle. There are no scenes lit by candlelight. You could have a dark room with a candle burning, but inevitably there'll be a spotlight. You know, if they blow the candle out, then they turn the spotlight off. That's the way they usually do it. I mean, if you go back to the 30s, 40s, that's the way it's always been done. Well, Kubrick wanted to illuminate these scenes strictly by candlelight. And he couldn't do it with the technology that he had, but he did it. And so it begs the question was, well, how did he do it? Well, he went to NASA. And he actually got cameras and film that NASA was using at the time, and they, NASA gave him the permission to use these specialized cameras and the specialized film that only NASA possessed uh, to shoot Barry Lyndon. So it begs the question. You know, why was NASA so eager to cooperate with Stanley Kubrick? I mean, the answer, the question answers itself. I mean, he was in with them for filming this moon footage and basically they would have done anything he wanted and he used them to film Barry Lyndon. So that does add another wrinkle to this. Whether I can sit here and say for certain that Kubrick filmed these guys jumping around in a sound studio, I don't know, but it is interesting to say the least.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. Just wanting to, to wrap up, Robert, first of all, thank you for, for joining us tonight. Uh, we could talk all night, and uh, we'll be sure to get you back on after Cinema Symbolism 3 drops, and I'm able to go through. Uh, as we wrap up, Greg, Bill, any other questions for Robert?
0: No, I again, I just appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the the amount of work that you've put into this. Especially in, like we talked earlier in this day and age, when there's so much misinformation, Wells researched books and and things like that are something that I always appreciate. And more importantly, we just appreciate you being one of our Masonic brothers. It's uh, it's always amazing the people we meet through this uh, fraternity, and you're just one of those great brothers and proud. Now call a friend.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, it's my pleasure to be here, and it's my pleasure to be with you this evening, brothers. Uh, it was been a Great little show and uh when Cinema Symbolism Three comes out, uh yeah, we'll definitely do this all over again. No problem.
1: Yes. Thanks again, Robert. I just want to say, you know, I'm a huge fan of your work and I can't wait for the third book to come out. I also want to thank our listening audience for tuning in to Meet, Act, and Part. And I'm going to do a little something selfish. Uh, today is my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, so I'm going to wish them happy anniversary. And if you like the content that we're providing, please uh, sponsor us on Patreon. And we will see you next time on another episode of Meet, Act, and Part.